If you have a Bible with you, uh, please open it to Acts chapter 17. We are in a series in Acts, and it is taking quite a while. I thought we'd be, I, I literally had another series that was going to begin in June. And uh, at this rate, I don't think that's happening this summer. It was going to be Proverbs. I thought that was exciting. Um, anyway, let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, I pray that through your word, as we look at the Holy Spirit guiding the church in its first days, that you would reorient us, that you would shape us into a people for your name and a people that is going, that is going to be on your mission in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before I was a Christian, when I kind of first was introduced to the whole uh, church thing, I had a friend who had brought me to church invite me to what I now recognize as a big tent revival meeting. Um, has anyone ever been to one of these or heard of them? Okay, this is all new. It was one of the strangest, most surreal nights of my life. I walked in and, you know, as you might expect, there's a huge tent out in the middle of a field and, and people are carrying on and playing exciting music. Oh, that's okay. But then it got weird. For starters, does anybody remember the TV show Small Wonder? where there was a, a family that was raising a robot as its daughter. Her name was Vicky. Does anybody remember this show from the 80s? No. I'm dying up here. Somebody know this show. Okay. Thank you, Connie. Connie knows Small Wonder. So Vicky from Small Wonder, as a grown-up, was there. And yeah, she was there, and they're like, hey, everyone, Vicky from Small Wonder's here. We were like, yeah, Vicky from Small Wonder. And she got up and he, she sang one of the most bizarre songs I've ever heard to this day. It could only be described as sounding like it came from a 1940s beauty pageant, but it was somehow about Jesus. And I was like, oh, I guess these folks think this is normal, but this is real strange. Then there were mimes. <laughs> Not French mimes, these were American mimes. And uh, white face paint, the whole thing. But there was like a hip-hop beat on. And they were kind of doing this pop and lock mime where they were enacting some sort of morality play. And I was like, okay, apparently these folks think this is normal too. I am real weirded out here. I had never been to a church in my life. And here I, here I am like thinking this is what goes on. I'm like, oh, okay, what, what do we got next? And, and it did get stranger. So there was a group of guys called the Power Team there. Um, oh, I could see by Jonathan's wince that he knows what the Power Team is. The Power Team was a group of guys who demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives by breaking things. <laughs> so that, and these guys were body, like gigantic bodybuilders. They're like, by the power of the spirit, I'm going to break these handcuffs. I'm like, I'm sure it's by the power of those steroids, bro. <laughs> and like, like you're popping handcuffs and, and they're like bending iron bars and ripping phone books to show you that the Holy Spirit is real. <laughs> and, and everything was like in this very strange code, you know, like, like, like the, washed by the blood. I was like, huh? You wash things with blood? The release of the spirit. I was like, oh, what's that? And they were like, the rapture. I'm like, okay, this is just getting weirder and weirder. Somehow I still became a Christian at some point. Like this didn't totally ruin it for me. But it was my first experience 
with subculture, with what's produced. You know, like there's a whole kind of idea that's always been with the church in various forms that you need to get away from the world. Right, that the culture at large is corrupt and bad, and you need to separate yourself. And when you're separate from it, you kind of come up with your own stuff. Mine was totally normal within this subculture and the power team as well. Like, no one else thought this was strange. But the problem with retreating from culture and creating your own little subculture is that you lose the ability to communicate with the culture. Like, coming from the, the culture and having no experience with church, n nothing could have made less sense to me than what I experienced that night, including the explanation of the gospel, which I never actually heard. You know, there's a, an understanding that we are to be, and Jesus says this, not of this world. Now, to, now what that does mean is not becoming part of the corrupt systems of the world. What it doesn't mean... Is, get, is, is becoming totally separate so that you're never in contact with the world. I mean, think about, think about the many ways that we see this. Um, you know, like, I'm not against Christian school or homeschool. Those are fine things. But there are some folks who are like, if you don't send your kids to only Christian school, and that's dicey, home is the best bet, and, and make sure you don't send your kids to the worldly schools because they will be corrupted. Or, you know, like, hey... Um, some of the messages and music are not so great. We need like a whole separate industry so that we're safe from Bon Jovi. <laughs> or like, like movies, you know, like clearly movies uh, have some, some questionable things in them. So let's, let's create like an alternative film industry. And if you ever see one of these things, like it's, it's, it's crazy sauce, like <laughs> like, they're all about the rapture. That's the only film topic that Christians can make a movie about. I've seen Christian-only gyms. It's like, yeah, you know, you don't want to lift secular. You want to <laughs> make sure you're pumping iron Christian-like. I mean, sometimes you even hear, like, I remember around, around Y2K thing, right? There was a lot of Christians who were like, well, we need to go... Y'all remember Y2K? Some of you guys are so young. It's ridiculous. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Y2K was when we thought the world was going to end at the year 2000 because all the computers would stop working and everything would explode somehow. And so there were some Christians who were like, hey, we need to like start little in-the-woods communes so, with bunkers and stuff like that. It's like, wait, so everything goes crazy in society and you want to take the gospel out away from it? How does that make any sense? And the problem is... When, when our understanding of not being of the world is to be separate from the world, is we actually lose the ability to be the church, to be the ones who bear the good news of Jesus. And also, it's not what we see in Scripture. In the book of Acts, we've seen the church on mission in some very uh, hostile places. And, and today's going to be no exception. Now, I want to remind us of the big picture of Acts. Acts is an ancient history. It's an ancient history. It does two things. It catalogs events, which is what we understand a history to do, but it also is meant to guide the future, right? That's the, that's the way ancient histories were written. Yes, these, these things happen, but it's also meant to shape and guide people in the future. And in particular, as a part of the church, this history is meant to guide us right now. 
So how does Acts guide us in how we are to engage with people who don't believe and with our culture at large? Well, we're going to take a look at Paul in the city of Athens, the great queen city of the philosophical and intellectual ancient world, uh, which was very thoroughly pagan, that is, worshiping um, you know, the gods Zeus and Hermes and so forth. So take a look with me at, uh, at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, he was waiting for his traveling companions in Athens, this is basically a stopover for him, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This gives us an idea of the culture of Athens. Uh, many ancient writers talk about how you couldn't turn around in the city of Athens without seeing a statue or an altar to one of the gods. Okay, so Paul is incensed by this. He's angered by it. He's grieved by it. So what does he do in verse 17? He reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So the synagogue is where Jews would have their worship service, and you know, many Greek cities had a small Jewish population. So he would go in there, and he would share the gospel there. But then we also see he was in the marketplace. This was a standard feature of every Greek city, the agora. It was an open-air marketplace where you would buy things and sell things. Um, and also, it was the place where ideas were shared. It was customary to stand up in the, the agora and espouse your philosophy or religion or whatever. So what do we see? We don't see Paul, even though he's in a very hostile city, we don't see him withdraw. We see him move toward physically. He's in the marketplace. He's in the synagogue. He's physically there. So the first way that this history guides us shows us that we need to meet people where they are physically. Now, this is important. I once visited a, uh, a really, really big church in Southern California. There's a few down there. And uh, you, when you drive towards this, this huge church, it's in a very working-class neighborhood in Riverside. Anybody know Riverside? Yeah, River, Riverside. Uh, and it's a very working-class neighborhood in Riverside, and you can literally see the walls of the church rising up. There's walls around a church complex. And you go inside the complex. They didn't just have, like, a huge sanctuary and classrooms and offices. They had a basketball gym. They had a movie theater. They had a Starbucks. They had a bookstore. They had a pizza joint. You know, I mean, think of that. That's, that's my entire week right there. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's taking the physical presence of the church members out of the community around them and building literal walls between the church and the community in which they are. And this is something that we see. Encouragement to be physically separate. Don't work in that industry. It's hard for Christians there. You might want to move to a red state because that's more friendly to, to Christians. Don't attend a party where dodgy stuff is happening, right? You don't want to be near all that. Now, if you're one of the people that's tempted to do the dodgy stuff, by all means, avoid that party. But saying like, hey, because this doesn't jive with my Christian values, I shouldn't be there, right? That's not what we see in Scripture. We see that we need to meet people where they are physically, but that's not all, because just because you're close by doesn't mean you make any sense. <laughs> in the 1230s, the, uh, the, 
the Mongols. Everybody heard of Genghis. It's Genghis Khan. That's how, how you actually say it. Genghis Khan and the Mongols were just, they had defeated China. They had defeated uh, the Muslim East, and they had turned westward. And, um, and these, these Mongol armies were, like, terrifying to Europe because it was just, I mean, at this point, the East was far more advanced than the West. And so Mongols against Western armies was pit bull versus beach ball. It was just no contest, right? And so the, the Mongols blew through the, this, the largest army that had ever been assembled, and there was nothing between them and the rest of Europe. And so everybody's panicking because the Mongols had a tendency to kill everyone. Just that's what they did. They came through, they killed everybody. They had actually believed their theology was that the sky god had told them to like subdue all the earth and kill everybody. Yeah, solid theology. Um, and so everyone turns to the Pope, Pope Innocent III, and they're like, what are we going to do? Help us out here, you know? Pray or something. And the Pope says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a letter to the great Khan, a guy named Guyuk. And I'm going to explain the gospel to him. And he's going to become a Christian. He's going to get baptized. There you go. No problem. You know, like, like he'll, he'll be on our side. And so the Pope wrote a letter that we have in the Vatican to the great Khan. He wrote it in Latin, a language that no, but none of the Mongols spoke. And here's what he said. I'm going to read it to you. Not the whole thing. He said this. God the Father of his graciousness, regarding with unutterable loving kindness the unhappy lot of the human race, brought low by the guilt of the first man and desiring of his exceeding great charity, mercifully to restore him whom the devil's envy overthrew by a crafty suggestion, sent from the lofty throne of heaven down to the lowly region of the world, his only begotten son, consubstantial with himself, who was conceived by the operation of the Holy Ghost in the womb of a forechosen virgin, and there clothed in the garb of, garb of human... You, are you guys getting any of this? Could you, and, and like a lot of you know your, know your Bible and the gospel pretty well. Did that sound like it? Does that sound like, hey, this guy's illiterate. He's from like the steppe. He's never had any experience with the gospel and you're dropping consubstantial. We actually have, we actually have Goyuk's response uh, to the Pope. He said, this your appeal, I have not understood. <laughs> So, so now I'm sure Innocent was a great guy, um, but like he's trying to explain the, it sounds like he's trying to explain the gospel to, to like St. Thomas or something, someone like that. He was not starting where the Mongols were, spiritually speaking, right? And that, that, that can be a real issue when you are separate from people who don't believe a lot. You start to sound like that when you do try to explain the gospel. We forget how to begin where people are spiritually. Some of you who, 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 don't, who aren't believers, like you've asked a question of a Christian and gotten a really harsh response, right? Like a defensive response, like honest question. How does the Bible line up with science? How dare you? You know, I'm offended. And, and we end up speaking about Jesus and the gospel and everything else in a way that just doesn't make sense to people. I spent the first couple of years walking with Jesus totally confused as to what Christians believe because people weren't starting where I was. So we're going to take a look at Paul 
explaining the gospel to people who have no experience with it, and we're going we're gonna to compare it to how he explains the gospel to people who have some knowledge, okay? Let's pick up at verse 18. As he's in the Agora, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They say, said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, right? That's, so who are these guys that he encounters in the marketplace? Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who ask him to come to the Areopagus. All right, Areopagus in translation is Mars Hill. You may have heard of that. But the Areopagus was an official assembly in Athens, okay? Athens, remember, the queen city of philosophy in the ancient world. And the Areopagus, their job was to maintain the intellectual health of Athens. So these were the people who tried and executed Socrates. Right? This is the same governing body. And they uh, invite Paul to tell them uh, about Jesus that he's preaching. Okay? So we're told they're Epicureans and Stoics. Now I'm going to butcher this, and our resident philosopher is just going to be quiet about it. <laughs> but the Epicureans... They believed that there is no soul. Okay. You can never get straight answers out of it. Yeah, they did and they didn't. Okay. But basically, that the gods were real, but were not super relevant, and that you, the, the goal is to live a life where you avoid suffering. And then the Stoics, they did believe that there was a creating and guiding force of the universe. All right, good. <laughs> they did believe there was a creating and guiding force in the universe. And so listen to how Paul explains the gospel to these people. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens or people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So, wait a second. He's, he's talking about a pagan idol right now, an idol that was to an unknown God. Remember, this is the very thing that provoked his spirit within him. Where does he begin? Does he begin in the book of Genesis? No. In, in fact, let's compare it to how he, be, he spoke uh, in a synagogue. Let's look back at 17, 1 through 3. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So when he's speaking to Jews, what does he start with? The scriptures. They already believed in the Old Testament. They already believed there was a coming Messiah. Christ is, is Greek for Messiah. 
And so he tells them that Jesus is this one foretold in the scriptures. When he starts speaking to these pagans who have no idea what the Bible says, where does he start? He starts from their own pagan idol. He says, hey, this God you worship in ignorance, I'm going to tell you about him. And let's, let's see what he says next. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So now that's tough to understand, but hear what he's saying. He's saying there's a creator God who guides history. He's saying these temples and idols is not how he served. He's beginning where the Epicureans and the Stoics were already in agreement, okay? He's not saying, you guys are all wrong about everything. Instead, he starts, he affirms some of the things that they already believe, where they're already, uh, where they're already in agreement with biblical truth. He meets them where they are spiritually. He doesn't race ahead for what they're not ready to hear. He begins where they are. So we need to meet people where they are spiritually. Sometimes, uh, sometimes when I was uh, coming up being discipled, I was like coached, like your interactions with people who, who don't believe the gospel should be like arguments, right? Like prove them wrong, show them how they're wrong, and like school them as if you're going to be walking around the kingdom of God. Like, hey, how'd you get here? Like, I lost an argument. Oh, cool. Glad that works. <laughs> Instead, we need to seek where someone already is in agreement with the gospel. And that requires knowing someone, caring about someone, listening to someone. Look, in our culture, believers and unbelievers, many, many people believe there is a God and a God who made everything. Many people who are not Christians believe there is a life after this one that matters. A lot of people who are not committed to Christ believe Jesus was somehow special or remarkable or taught or lived the truth. Heck, there's people who reject the whole idea of God, period, don't like religion, all that, who still affirm human rights and human dignity, something that comes directly from the Christian faith. We don't need to go in and say, here's how you're wrong, right? You don't need to go and just start downloading things that make no sense to them, like, I've heard, yeah, just quote the Bible to people. That works. It's like, no, start where people are. Find where the Holy Spirit has already spoken to them and begin from there. But how things are communicated is crucial. Not just what's communicated, but how it's communicated. And this is really key, and this is part of why the church is so important. You know, back when, um, when nuclear power was new, and they were figuring out how to harness it. One of the problems they ran into is that, of course, you know, a nuclear reactor is going to kick out a small amount of, of waste, right? The spent rods. And, and even though it's a small amount, these things are dangerous for many thousands of years. And they said, well, how do you tell someone 5,000 years in the future that this is radioactive and dangerous? You can't just write it. 
languages are lost all the time. We don't have any languages that I know of from before 5,000 years ago, right? Like all languages from before 5,000 years, we don't know. Well, we can't use symbols either, like the little radioactive symbol. Symbols change over time. The skull and crossbones that means poison now once meant medicine. That was just a couple hundred years ago. So that's not super reliable. And, and so one idea they hit on was a priesthood a nuclear priesthood that was going to pass the message down from one generation to the next so that they could communicate with their cultural moment the fact that this stuff is radioactive. That's kind of the idea also of the church, that every generation is called to, to share the message of Christ with their cultural moment. And when we think about this, like, Think about how the cultural expressions of the Christian faith and the gospel vary all over the world right now. And, you know, a, a church like this would not do a very good job of communicating anything 500 years ago in, I don't know, Sweden or something like that. They'd be real confused by us, right? And vice versa. If, if we if we have a practice of retreating from our culture, we aren't going to know how to communicate with our culture. That stands to reason, doesn't it? Now, we're going to see that Paul converses in their culture. First of all, he's speaking Greek. Just want to point that out. But we're going to see that he even understands their culture. Verse 26, uh, it's, uh, just, just to get context, he says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Please note the quotes around that. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What did Paul just do? Was he quoting from the Bible? Nobody was quoting. You know that first quote, in him we live and move and have our being? Do you know who wrote that? A guy named Epimenides, writing a hymn to Zeus. It was a pagan worship song that Paul quotes right then. And then the, uh, the we are his offspring is from a poem by a Stoic poet named Aretas. Right? So what's Paul doing? He's conversing in their culture. He's not dropping Bible verses or stuff from the Jewish world on them, which is what he was from, but he is meeting them where they are culturally. Now, he does go on to challenge them. In verse 29, we see, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he does, he doesn't just say, hey, you guys are doing a great job. He does challenge them, but look at what he does. He's not only where they are physically. He's not only meeting them where they are spiritually, but he also meets them where they are culturally. He has a thorough understanding of the parts of the Christian message that are going to first resonate with this audience. We need to meet people where they are culturally. And that doesn't just mean the 
outward things, you know, like all the stuff that I experienced at that tent revival. That was a lot of outward stuff that was culturally very jarring for me. I was like into punk and surfing and sci-fi novels. None of the things, I didn't recognize anything going on there, okay? So you don't want to be totally ham-handed with the externals, but really it's more about understanding the longings of our culture, understanding the values of our culture, Understanding what makes one credible or non-credible in our culture. If we don't do this, then our attempts to share the gospel or explain the Christian faith to someone who's searching or curious is going to be as bizarre and, and incoherent as that Big Tent revival was to me. Look, the, the gospel echoes throughout our culture. Like, we need to pay attention to what resonates with people. Like throughout the Avengers movies, the, the, the message of the gospel, like the echoes of the gospel are strung throughout. I mean, Harry Potter, the seventh book, is a retelling of the story of Jesus, all right? That resonated with people. You could look at the frequent spiritual uh, content and messages of someone like J. Cole or Kendrick Lamar. That resonates with our culture. You, there, no one gets tired of seeing movies about Dr. King. Why? He's so highly respected. The message that he had, which comes straight from Scripture, straight from the gospel, still resonates with our culture. The Constitution of the United States, like that, that still resonates in our culture, and it is built on Christian principles. I want to point out our government has a triune structure. Anyone ever notice that? The idea of the rule of law. A Presbyterian minister wrote the book, Lex Rex, Law is King, right? This is a Christian, this is part of the gospel that resonates in our culture. We need to pay close attention to what is resonating in our culture if we're going to effectively meet people where they are. Now, is this some sort of like pragmatic bid to like be popular or something like that? Right? Like, like meet people where they are physically, spiritually, culturally, so you can be popular? No. Really, it's all about the fact that God meets people where they are. The prime mover of the story of redemption is God himself. And when we look throughout the scriptures, cover to cover, we don't see a bunch of awesome people searching for God and finding him. You know what we see? We see God moving towards people people who aren't looking for him at all, people who don't deserve his love. I think of the, the entire story of redemption really starts with Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God goes to him. Moses, likewise, he wasn't like, hey, I'm going to find God. No, he was like, just, he was clueless. God shows up, goes to him. God met him where he was. The people of Israel right? Like they're not, hey, we're going to go find God. We're going to, no, they were slaves in Egypt. God delivers them out. He sets up his own presence in the tabernacle, which was a huge tent that God lived in, right? He moves towards, he meets people where they are. And of course, the most outstanding example of this, of this big picture pattern of scripture is Jesus himself, that God himself becomes a human being, walks around, has friends, has family, lays down his life for us. God meets people where they are. It's not a pragmatic thing. 
It's a matter of following where God leads his people. There's a, there's a great uh, documentary called Life Animated. Uh, Life Animated is about uh, a journalist named Ron Suskind. He writes for a lot of things we've heard of. And he had a, um, has a severely autistic son named Owen. And by the time Owen was six, he had, he had never spoken a word. The only thing that Owen interacted with, because he would run around and just be crazy otherwise, the only thing that settled him down and that he paid attention to were Disney animated films. And this was the era of like Aladdin and all the classics, right? So he was, he was really into these things. And that's all, that was his language, was Disney. And so one night, you know, they had tried everything to be able to interact with their son and have some sort of relationship and nothing worked except Disney. And so Ron Suskin's walking past his son's room one night and he sees his son sitting on his bed, just flipping through one of those, um, you know, like the books that they make out of the, the rescuers or whatever Disney movie. Everybody know what these, these all, yeah, okay, I can move on. Okay, so he's flipping through one of those and there happens to be a puppet of the parrot Iago from Aladdin. We've all seen Aladdin, correct? And we all know that's Gilbert Gottfried who does, you know, that, that, that voice. And so Ron Suskin had a sudden flash of inspiration. He, his son didn't see him, so he hits the floor and he army crawls into his son's room, right? And he kind of sneaks the parrot off of the bed and he puts it on his hand. And then he goes under the covers, right? Like at the, at the foot of the bed and he crawls under the covers, and then he pops his hand out the other side, so to his son's point of view, it's just the parrot Iago is there, and, and Ron Suskin happens to do an incredible Gilbert Gottfried impression, which I will now attempt. <laughs> he said, Owen, Owen, what's it like to be you? To Ron Suskin's shock and amazement, he heard his son speak for the first time, and what he said broke his heart. He said, not good, because I don't have any friends. So he's under the covers, like, trying not to cry. And so he says, Owen, when did you and I become such good friends? And he said, he heard his son speak again. He said, when I watched Aladdin and you made me laugh. And he, he was able to have a conversation for the first time with his son for, for several minutes. And that was actually the beginning of, of, of getting Owen to be able to relate to his parents, they didn't say, well, this kid better figure out how to find us and, and relate to us. No. What did they do? They took the one thing, the only thing that he could hear and interact with. They met him where he was. When we talk about meeting people where they are physically, spiritually, culturally, this is not some sort of cynical, pragmatic way to, to be popular. It's the heart of God for us because God meets us where we are. Meeting people where they are is the people of God reflecting the heart of God. Please pray with me. Lord, how you love us. Lord, how you have had grace on each and every one of us that you humbled yourself to speak to us, that you humble yourself to take on a human body, to go to a cross for us. I pray that we would take this fundamental message in motion of how you relate to us, that you meet us where you are, and that you would turn us into a church with your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.
We have an opportunity to meet with God this morning. In worship, absolutely. We come here, we offer praise to God, we hear from his word, and then we're invited to sit down at table with him. This table, communion, is for everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. If you're not ready to do that, please don't feel pressure to come forward at this time. Um, but this is a time where we say yes to God. So I want to give you a moment of silent reflection to prepare your hearts.